Thanks for producing, uh, tuning in to uh, Utah Public Radio and to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, this hour, we're going to be talking with Kerry Bate. He's written a very interesting new book called The Women, A Family Story. But before we jump into that uh, topic, I want to get in a couple of comments uh, responding to uh, episodes from last week. Uh, first up is Steve, who uh, responds to a program on antibiotics and beef production. And uh, one of my guests on that program was Dan Thompson, Jones Professor of Production Medicine and Epidemiology at Kansas State University. And in response to my question about uh, use of antibiotics to help fatten animals, um, Dr. Thompson uh, uh, said that that uh, had never been the case, if I recall him correctly, uh, the use of antibiotics in fattening animals. So Steve uh, writes, I tuned into Access Utah just in time to hear your guest's disingenuous reply about fattening animals with antibiotics. After decades, so I googled it, he said. After decades of using enormous amounts of antibiotics to fatten cattle and other animals uh, bred for meat, the practice was finally disallowed in the U.S. this year. Europe disallowed it in 2006. And uh, Steve uh, sends in a couple of links. Uh, he sends a link to a New York Times article. The Fat Drug is what it's titled from March of 2014. And uh, he also... Uh, uh, sends in a uh, uh, entry from Cora. Why do antibiotics used as livestock industry increase the rate at which animals gain weight? You can find that on Cora.com. Then we uh, also received uh, a response to our program in which we talked about the events in Charlottesville, Virginia. Talked about a broad range of issues, um, including monuments. And how do we decide which monuments stay, which go, and what do those monuments mean? Here's Andrea. Andrea DeHaan says, I'm enjoying your conversation on Access Utah this morning, and thank you for giving attention to the events in Charlottesville and the response that followed. In your discussion, there have been a lot of comparisons made to how Germany deals with right-wing pro-Nazi groups. Even though Germany has memorialized some reminders of the Holocaust and of Nazi Germany, their schools and governments go to great lengths to educate their citizens about what happened and to ensure that history does not repeat itself. German public television is inundated with documentaries and footage reflecting what happened. Perhaps if the history of slavery, civil rights, and race in this country were sufficiently addressed in K-12 and university curricula, or remembered and reflected by our media and politicians, Americans would have a clearer understanding of our own actions and of the responsibility we all have to ensure that we move forward and not backward. Thank you, Andre DeHaan. Well, thanks, Andre, and uh, thanks uh, to Steve for those comments. Keep those coming to upraxis at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be discussing an interesting book out from University of Utah Press called The Women, A Family Story. We have with us uh, the author, Carrie William Bate. Here is how University of Utah describes uh, this uh, book. Family history, usually destined or even designed for limited consumption, is a familiar genre within Mormon culture, mostly written with little attention to standards of historical scholarship. Such works are distinctly hagiographic, hedugra- a form of family memorabilia. But in the right hands, many family sagas can prove widely engaging. And Carrie Bate proceeds on the premise that a story centering on the women of the clan could provide fresh perspectives and insight. 
And so we meet pioneer Catherine Campbell Steele, her daughter, young Elizabeth, first Mormon child born in Utah, Kate, an accomplished community leader, and Sarah, a gifted seamstress trapped in an unhappy marriage. Carrie Bate has published in such periodicals as Utah Historical Quarterly, Oral History Review, American Genealogist, and Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Uh, Carrie Bate, welcome to the uh, to UPR. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Interesting uh, book, and um, I want to ask about the title, but first I wonder if I could have you read the first uh, paragraph from your introduction. This kind of sets out what you were going for, how you were framing the story. Thank you. This is the story of four women spanning the years 1816 through 1949, mothers and daughters who faced all that men, environment, and God could throw at them. It's the story of fights, cooperation, failings, and triumph in a world that valued women cheaply, granted nothing cheerily, and dismissed them easily. And though these stories are framed by Utah and Mormonism, their lives represent the experiences of many women of their era. And uh, elsewhere in the book you write, I believe this is your quote, capable women are a threat. Um, and, 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 and therefore, you know, through a lot of history, and that, that I'm just... Uh, pointing out here the irony of uh, talking about women, two men here talking about women, but I guess it's we all have women in our lives, right? <laughs> and you are certainly highlighting the women in your family line. Why did you want to frame it this way? Well, um, the women were a lot more interesting than the men in my family. Uh, they were very accomplished. They were talented both in terms of handicrafts and the basic skills of motherhood, but they also really had in strong and individualistic personalities. Um, I found that really interesting. Some of my relatives were saintly enough to be a little boring, and and these women had spunk and fire and uh, strong opinions and were willing to share those. Um, In the introduction, uh, the University of Utah Press introduction there, um, talk about that a lot of family histories are essentially hagiographies, right? It's the lives of saints. Yes. Whitewashed, uh, leave out the bad, put in the good. I guess like a lot of eulogies and at funerals. Yeah, and there's a place for that. That's a that's a genre by itself, and uh, it's honorable. It's very, very old. It goes back, as I'm sure you know, to the early Middle Ages and the lives of the saints. Um, it serves a need. There's a lot of people that really enjoy those. I think there are also a lot of people who, who like uh, flesh and blood individuals. And, um, you know, as Samuel Johnson said, it's more easy to identify with somebody who struggled and overcome uh, problems than it is people who seem to never have had a misstep. Hmm. Uh, so, for example, it was interesting to me to read uh, some of the letters back and forth uh, between Catherine Campbell Steele and her husband, who was serving as a missionary in the LDS Church in England, was it? Or, yes. Um, especially his letters back. Yes. Are, 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 <laughs> they're a little spicy. They're a little, uh, he, he's, he's venting anger at some points. Yes, he was a he was a complicated character in his own right. He he was a little Irishman, about five foot, somewhere between five foot three and five foot six. Uh, he had a fiery temper, and um, his he was very authoritarian. He'd been a, a military man in Utah. This was a major in the in the Mormon battalion or the Nauvoo Legion. Um, he was a private in the Mormon battalion, but his father was also. Uh, in the Napoleonic Wars, and his, he was born when his father was in his 40s, so he grew up in quite an authoritarian environment. His father drilled him as a soldier when he was a boy, and um, he was um, 
he was pretty harsh with Catherine sometimes. Mm-hmm. In fact, one one point he says uh, he's trying to convert some of her relatives. He implies that he's almost got the job done until a letter from Catherine arrived. Yes, he was very explicit that she'd blown the whole thing up, and uh, and it was her fault that he couldn't bring these people into the fold. Yeah, uh, whining. He he complains about her whining uh, from time to time. I think it has to be really hard to be married to a micromanaging authoritarian personality because if you don't consult him about everything, uh, then you're in trouble. And if you do, then you're a whiner. So I think she had challenges that way. Interestingly, he had three wives and uh, she was the only one that uh, was his wife from beginning to end. Mm. Uh, one of the things in this book is you you describe everyday life. It's very, very interesting in a way that sometimes it's it's broad strokes, right? And we hear, we hear about the historical figures we don't hear as much about day-to-day life. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about Catherine's, some of the problems she was facing, especially with her husband away at that at that point. Well, she was um, living in Tokerville. It was a town, in those days, it was so isolated. One of the town's women said it, neither God nor the devil would find them there. Um, she had injured her finger in uh, some kind of an accident, and uh, the place was kind of falling apart. Uh, Their fences were down. The animals had gotten into the fruit orchard. Um, Her son was an alcoholic and uh, wasn't providing very much help. So she had a—and she was supposed to manage all this, and uh, she had this perfectionist husband in England who she knew was not going to be happy when he came back. I'm sure she was very frustrated. Mm. When he did come back, when they when they were together, what uh, how was uh, how was the family life? She was kind of passive aggressive, so she led him to believe that he was the ruler. And um, but you can see some hints that that really wasn't true. For instance, when she got that really bullying letter about uh, screwing up the conversion of her relatives, uh, she stopped writing to him, hmm. and. Um, so he wrote her another blast that he wasn't hearing from her and noted that their son was on the mission with him and noted that the son was getting letters. And, and you know, that was, I'm sure, her way of um, setting him straight. Yeah. This is all, and I'm sure that your family, your ancestors, weren't the only ones having difficulties. It, you know, it does occur to me that a lot of times uh, this history is presented um, warts removed. I think that's true, and I, I think the thing that uh, I was really lucky with, and our family's been lucky, is so many records were saved. Uh, Catherine's husband, John, was uh, very confident of the importance of his life. He saved all of his letters, or many of his letters, and all kinds of other papers, and those were handed down uh, through the family and the large trunk that he brought to the United States Ireland. So um, there was just a wealth of information, and um, they were human beings, mm. and that's apparent. John Steele had three wives, you said? He did. Uh, um, how did Catherine react to that? Um, his He only was a polygamist for a brief time. He married a much younger woman named Mary Jane Old. Uh, they divorced within a year. He married after Catherine died when he was 72 to a woman who was in her 20s. And um, they had some terrific rows. She was actually bipolar. Um but they really didn't know how to diagnose it uh, during their marriage. 
but she would have um, really angry outbursts. She was so disruptive that at one point she got a broom and ran around the house and bashed out all the windows. And one of their neighbors was writing in his diary that they needed to figure out what to do and whether they should arrest them or not for all of these public quarrels. Mm. She ended up, they ended up divorcing, and she actually died in the U State, Utah State uh, Mental Hospital. Wow. And her death certificate actually did identify her as being bipolar. Oh, oh well, um, that, that was at a point where they could, I guess they had a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of insane asylums, uh, there was an interesting passage. Um, John tries to contact one of Catherine's relatives who was in an insane asylum for religious mania. Yes, that was Catherine's niece, Marianne Campbell. Um, she had, um, he blamed it on Moody and Sankey, who were some popular preachers then, but she she was actually hospitalized for, for a while with that condition. What, what do we think religious mania was? Um, I'm supposing it was a little bit like John Steele, somebody who was obsessed with religion and, uh, and probably got in the way of organizing their lives. Mm. Um, but I'm supposing that she took it to a degree that, that required hospitalization. Right. Uh, and it's my understanding that at least some areas at some times, um, somewhat easy, somewhat, you know, we would say in our times too easy to, to admit somebody, to get somebody admitted to a. Or, or to commit someone to an insane asylum. Yes, it was certainly um, certainly much easier in those days when people who were accused of mental illness had no particular civil rights. Yeah. Uh, Marianne was hospitalized in Belfast, Ireland, so it was mm-hmm. under a different legal system than yeah. in the United States. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we get to some of the other uh, fascinating women in this uh, in this book. And by the way, on the on the uh, front cover here, you, these are the women, the four women. I. I expect, um, are they? Or? It, Catherine's not pictured. Catherine's not pictured. The okay. oldest woman is young Elizabeth, and then there's Kate, Sarah, and the little girl is Nell, who is Sarah's daughter. Okay. All right. By the way, how would you, you do it, you do in the book, what you could, maybe you could describe for us, uh, describe Catherine for us, for physical appearance. Catherine was about five foot six. She was very slender. We have some clothes that were passed down in the family, so we've been able to, to calculate her height and her, and her size. Um, she apparently had sandy or red hair, uh, light complexion. She was soft-spoken and she was described as queenly. Um, and she was described as really not quite fitting into pioneer life. And uh, there was also the family lore that she, uh, was descended from royalty. And so she had these traits and those traits weren't really royal traits. They were the kinds of things that you associated with, gentlemen and gentlewomen who were well-educated in Great Britain at the time. Mm. So it was said she didn't quite fit into pioneer life? How so? Um, She was considered a little too refined, and um, Mm. I guess she just wasn't as earthy as some of uh, her compatriots. Okay. That was the perception of the compatriots, who— Yes. Yeah. Maybe some uh, feelings of, and, and there can be some some heavy norming right in these communities. In a small community, you pressure to fit in. And they might have been comparing her to John, who was quite the opposite. Okay. He was he was he was uh, as we talked about, he was very authoritarian, yeah. and a strong personality. Well, talk a bit about uh, sources. Where do where do you get these uh, stories? Um, in some cases, letters. Yes. 
right, uh, back and forth. And uh, in some cases, letters would be missing, but you could tell there were there were letters maybe yet to be what yet to be found. Yes, um, I've actually every so often I find letters on eBay. Uh, but John's letter collection was a huge help. He also was an intermittent uh, diarist or journalist, and he kept um, some really important records, including a wonderful diary of the Mormon Battalion. Uh, so for Catherine, um, those things were helpful. I also used oral history. It wasn't as rich for Catherine's generation because uh, it, Catherine died in, I believe, 1892. So, uh, But there were stories handed down in the family, and there were some uh, memoirs written by some of her grandchildren that helped. Hmm. Uh, so diaries, uh, letters, oral histories. And you do write that uh, it's, it can be somewhat problematic. Um, I thought this was interesting. You said we live our lives sequentially, but we relive our lives episodically. Yes. And by that, I mean um, we relive our lives through stories, no. uh, but we actually live our lives in a linear manner. And uh, so there were some really important stories about Catherine. Mm-hmm. I should also mention that the Relief Society minutes of Tocqueville Ward um, are completely preserved for her time frame. And I got a lot of information from that. Some of it's sort of subtle uh, donations to help the poor. Uh, working on quilts together. But there was also an important entry when she passed away that showed that the other women in the Relief Society had great fondness for her. Mm. She, she also was the person who at one time was in charge of, of providing value to donations. And back then when they didn't have a lot of cash and it was a barter economy, that was pretty important. Mm. So extrapolating information from various sources. Yes. You also said important uh, to, to test, especially in diaries, oral histories that are very subjective, to test that against other sources. Yes. Yes. Um, you talk also about uh, uh, transcribing oral histories. Yes. What a what a challenge. Yeah. Uh, what to do with placeholder words, right? Yes. Crutch words. Yes, exactly. Um, the conventions in the oral history... Um, as you say, industry, but that's not quite the right word in, in, in that profession, is that you eliminate those crutch words and uh, and kind of smooth it out a bit. Mm-hmm. I actually tried writing the book literally how people reported things, and it, it, it was a, I think it would have been a problem for the reader because you would have been pausing every time the person talking paused. So, mm-hmm. But that's a challenge, and there's really – I don't think there's any – perfect way to get down oral history because mm. um, people meander, they get off point, uh, you know, and you really need the the essence of what they have to say. But, you, of course, you can't change what they said. You can just uh, leave out the crutch words like you said. What was your goal? And you said you were you set out to do this as, as if it were or just all oral history or, or the way people talked in oral history, found that you couldn't really do that. But what was what was your goal there? Well, I was re- really fascinated with, um, if you want to call it that, the dialect of southwestern Utah. Uh, these people were on the frontier, the Mormon frontier, for a long time past places like Salt Lake City. And um, so I was just really curious how they talked. And, and a lot of the people that I talked to uh, lived in very small, somewhat isolated communities. And so I just was I just really found it fun and interesting to mm. get the dialect down. Mm-hmm. I hope some of that's preserved in the book. Yeah. Anything jump out to you that, that you could recall that would be an example of that dialect? 
Well, one of my favorites was, and it's, I don't know if it's a dialect or what, but I interviewed a great aunt, and she was talking about this baby that uh, uh, had been delivered, and she said it didn't have no incubators in them days. <laughs> I thought that was a great one. Right, right. <laughs> I always enjoyed, uh, and the spelling is always interesting. It reminds me of my grandmother's letters. Uh, she lived in Hinkley out near Delta, western Utah. Yeah. And uh, very creative spelling. Char- yes. Charming. Charming, Charming. You know, yeah, and the the I understand it's a Scandinavian influenced uh, thing the the transposition of the uh, of of the O sound. So my grandparents would have said fark for fork, and that kind of thing. I guess if you're on the you're on the frontier or have influence from from some other language, then that, those things are going to happen. Yeah, I got some of that as well. Mm, yeah, uh, one thing you mentioned was uh, just a gold mine, small town newspaper. Yes. Um, John Steele died in 1903. What was I going to do for sources since his trunk stopped? The papers in his trunk, his trunk essentially stopped then. But it was about 1903 that uh, rural county newspapers began to be well-preserved. And uh, the, the University of Utah has a great collection that's online. Um, and I just mined those for all they were worth. I, just a tremendous source. And they're published weekly. Um, they would have a column from almost every little town in the county, and so you could just follow things along. When you combine that with the church records, uh, the you know the Relief Society, the Sunday school, sacrament meeting, priesthood meetings, all those kinds of things, you combine that. And then when I started doing oral histories, there were people who'd been alive in 1903 and subsequent years. So I was able to use all three of those sources um, and sort of cross-check them against each other to come up with the information that, mm. about what happened. In those small town, those weekly newspapers, still some of that goes on. I remember you know, the Vernal Express growing up. Um, you'd have... The news was so-and-so visited their daughter so-and-so in some other community, you know. that that's I don't know if it still goes on today, but when I was growing up, that was still going on, that kind of reporting. And it's amazing how important that can be when you're doing a biogra- biographical study. Um, those little clues about who's where, when, and uh, who moved in and who moved out and who went to visit Uncle George, all that stuff yeah. really can provide some great information. And you could look at that uh, with kind of a jaundiced eye, and I know I did growing up when I was reading those those papers, but that would have been, you know, alongside world events, the, that was the news, I mm-hmm. suppose, in those small communities. Yes. Another thing that's really interesting to me, and this is in terms of oral history, so I'm not leap, hope, I hope I'm not leaping too far ahead, but when you deal with people who grew up before uh, and during the radio era, but before television and before talkies and the movies, it was a very oral culture. And I found when I interviewed very elderly people that grew up in that era, they were just had a fantastic way of expressing themselves, just rich uh, language with very descriptive and just a joy to listen to. Mm. So uh, that that was another thing of interest to me. A tradition perhaps we're losing. I suspect we are. I, I don't think there's we're going we're gonna to learn much in terms of our oral expression from doing texting. But. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a different form of expression, right? Yeah. I wonder what, to, let's pause here to, to talk about oral histories, uh, people who may want to collect some histories from their family. What uh, tips would you give people? 
The first thing uh, I learned with oral history is you have to be prepared with questions. I think one of the first interviews I did, I sat down with a great, great aunt and said, tell me about so-and-so who was her father-in-law. And she said, well, he was a nice guy. And I didn't know what to ask next. Mm. Uh, so I think to be as prepared as you can, um, if you don't know anything about the person you're trying to learn about, then just be prepared with a lot of follow-up questions, a lot of details uh, questions. If you have the ability to check some kind of contemporary records like these county newspapers, you will never run out of things to ask about. But th that was my big takeaway. You really have to be prepared, be prepared for the interview and then relax a little bit and kind of let it take its own pace. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have to coax? It's been my experience that uh, sometimes, often people say, oh, you know, my story is not that interesting. A little bit. I think I had one person turn me down, but generally I got a fantastic response. Mm. And these people from these uh, these small communities, uh, they're mostly related. They knew each other. Your so-and-so's grandson or great-grandson, mm. they could kind of fit that in. So I, I, I was actually treated very generously by the people I interviewed. Mm. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more with uh, Carrie Bate. He's author of a new book out from University of Utah Press called The Women, A Family Story. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Moab Area Travel Council, whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grand County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. Did you know that character could be the most important factor in predicting a happy marriage? For decades, family science researchers believed success in marriage to be the result of outward skills such as communication. But what if our character traits naturally lead to those skills? Researchers surveyed more than 1,500 married people in Arkansas, Utah, and Vermont. They were asked to evaluate their partner's character and rate their own marital happiness. Those with open-minded, respectful, and modest partners were significantly happier. As we build our character by practicing compassionate and gentle interactions with our loved ones, our relationships can become more healthy and happy. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're back on Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Kerry uh, Bate. His uh, book out from University of Utah Press is The Women, A Family Story. So, Kerry Bate, uh, maybe reset the scene. How would you describe your book? What... Uh well, my goal in my book was to um, present as vividly as I could the lives of four women whose um, careers spanned um, 1814 through 1949. So they, uh, they took in uh, almost all of the 19th century and uh, nearly half of the 20th. What I was interested in is they were mother through daughter. I was interested in how they interacted with, with each other, what role women played in the communities that they lived in, how they... Um, did things in rural areas and uh, what kind of pressures and uh, accomplishments and challenges that they faced. 
Did they all live in this, a similar area, Canaryville, Tuckerville? Yes, they did. Uh, Catherine um, died in, in Tokerville, but was buried in Parowan. She and her husband were with the first group that settled Parowan. Mm-hmm. And her daughter lived in Canaryville, and her granddaughter and her great-granddaughter, though the, those three moved to uh, Hurricane in 1920. Hmm. Let's talk about the next uh, woman in, in the book. This would be the daughter of Catherine uh, Steele, and she has an unusual name, Young Elizabeth. Yes, um, her father named her after Brigham Young, and so he named her Young Elizabeth, and uh, which has puzzled people ever since. And, of course, she was always known as Elizabeth or Libby. And she was the fourth, first uh, uh, baby born among the, the pioneers. This was August of 47, right? That's correct. They'd arrived late uh, July. Yes. They, they were with the Mormon Battalion. A group of the Mormon Battalion with wives had been sent to winter during 1846-47 in Pueblo. And so they got to the valley on the 29th of July, and Catherine gave birth to Elizabeth on the 9th of August. Mm. So she would have come across uh, on, on the trek uh, pregnant. Absolutely, through yes. The, through the, you know, and the later stages of pregnancy. Yes, it must have been pretty challenging. Yeah, I, I, I imagine. Um, and so tell me a bit about uh, young Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth was a very strong-willed woman. Uh, she was barely educated, uh, but she was very opinionated. She was very much like her father in a way. And... Um, she was a midwife, and she uh, was a midwife for many, many years in Canara, and um, was quite successful at it. Her husband was uh, in the bishopric in that small town, and uh, she worked with him to clean the sacrament utensils and those kinds of things. But she had a very active career of her own. Hmm. And I'm not sure where this comes in the book. I was I was uh, thumbing through, and there was some. Humor, I guess it would, you could call it from the men's point of view, um, you, know, you know, jokes like, uh, you know, the, the Lord rested after he made Adam, he made Eve, and then he hasn't rested since. That kind of thing, I guess, said in, in sermons and, uh, I, you know, yeah. if you talk a little bit, bit about that. And I don't know what the women would have thought about that. <laughs> well, what you're referring to is George Berry gave the Fourth of July toast in uh, Canaraville uh, around 1904. And... He mentioned that since the occasion of women, that neither God, man, or the devil has ever rested, but that they had rested in between the earlier creations. Do we have reaction from the women to this kind of a sentiment? No, I think that that was pretty acceptable in, in those times, and mm. um, I think uh, people were had a more gender-identified role than they do now. Yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, the, the role of women. What would have, women would have uh, done in Canaryville and uh, Tokerville? In, in these years? Well, um, some things that really struck me, um, maybe because I'm a guy and uh, didn't think about it, but it was an incre- incredible sociability that they had. Um, they organized clubs and uh, they uh, had church activities that worked together in. The Relief Society was really important to them. They uh, made quilts. They uh, collected grain, other food. Toker, or Canaraville was famous for raising potatoes. So they, um, they really had a lot of social activities. And, of course, things like quilting are very social. It's a little different than some of men's work, which tends to be more competitive and uh, less cooperative. Mm. One thing that comes out in the book, especially in the early years, uh, the housing, for example, could, could be pretty primitive. Yes. Um, you, you know, you, you, you start out with a pretty 
primitive, basic thing, and then you try, if you can, to get into better housing or build better housing, right? Yes, yes. Um, they started out, as you said, very primitive conditions, but uh, in, in each case that uh, I ran into there, getting a better house was a big goal, and mm-hmm. I suspect the women were more driven in that area than some of the men. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to say about young Elizabeth? Uh, she was really a fascinating character. She lived to be over 90, and because she was the first Mormon born in Utah, she was uh, she became a staple in all the parades. Uh, when President Harding visited Utah in 1923, she was on the stand with him. She got a lot of attention. She just loved it. And um, she had some interesting little quirks. She was afraid of the dark, so she had to have a lamp on at night. Uh, but she loved to go fast. And um, you, uh, one of her grandsons said, you could never drive a car too fast to please her. She, <laughs> the faster, the better. And then um, she did when she was 79 years old, just before her birthday, she uh, met up with her son in Delta and took an airplane ride around the Delta area. And she just loved that. She mm-hmm. said that she finally got to go as fast as she wanted. Illustrates the the fast march of technology, right? Her mother would have come across with the uh, pioneers, and yes. uh, and she took a ride in a plane. It's uh, quite a leap, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what about uh, her daughter? Is it Kate? Yes. T- tell me about Kate. Well, the interesting thing about these women is they tended to alternate between a somewhat aggressive individual and a somewhat passive individual. So Catherine was kind of a more passive, a little bit passive-aggressive with her husband. Um, young Elizabeth was a very strong personality. Kate was a little more subdued, but she she could be fiery. She was um, she worked really hard at being a mom and doing those kinds of things, but her mother was very demanding, so she actually took care of her mother her entire life. She was the oldest daughter, and her mother died in her house when Kate was in her uh, probably late 70s, early 80s. She, um, Her most interesting part of her career is that she was made Relief Society president about 1914. So she was the Relief Society president during World War I. And all of the communities in Utah were given assignments uh, during World War I to produce socks and underwear and sweaters and uh, gather aluminum and all kinds of things. And so these efforts were led by the Relief Society, and she was the leader in her community. The Relief Society also was responsible for sitting up with the dead, preparing women for burial. Uh, They had really important roles to play. Another thing that was really fascinating to me, and I think a lot of this goes as credit to Amy Lyman, Amy Brown Lyman, who was a Relief Society president of the LDS Church at the time. But these women, um, their children were dying of things like diphtheria and typhoid because they were drinking bad water. And these women really led an effort to um, clean up the water system, uh, bring in clean and pure water, and uh, increase the uh, health of the communities. It made a huge difference. And um, so being a member of the Relief Society, a president of the Relief Society, was a really important calling in the community. Mm. And could go on for years and years, right? You, yes. You know. um, they sort of went on forever yeah, in those yeah. days. One thing you wrote, just a, a kind of a one sentence uh, in the book, you talked about that war relief yes. that the Relief Society was involved in. Kate, of course, very committed to it. The town, maybe not as much. That was intriguing to me. Um, 
some uh, my impression guess would have been that the complaints about World War One all happened in hindsight, but at least in Canera, in those weekly reports to the county newspaper, there was always an undercurrent of disgruntlement about being called away to go fight overseas, and um, so they did their duty, they exceeded their quotas. But there was a lot of resentment about the draft and the, their boys being um, sent to tr- military training camps and sent to France and other places. Mm. Well, why do you think that was? Uh, I think there was an isolationist streak. Mm-hmm. And um, there was another thing that went on, and that is that uh, Woodrow Wilson campaigned on the slogan that he kept us out of war. And the next year, he, right after he was inaugurated, uh, he led the effort to declare war against the— uh, Axis or the Germans, and um, so some of them felt really betrayed politically. Hmm. Um, I, I recount the story of Phoebe Davis, who uh, was a lifelong Republican, but she voted for Woodrow Wilson because he kept us out of the war. And then her son Elmer got drafted, and she lived to be, I think, 103 and never vote, voted for a Democrat again hmm. in her life because that was too big a betrayal. Hmm. So there were there were uh, men who were drafted and. Yes. And, and sent over from uh, Canara and from uh, yes. Tokerville. Okay. And according to the Canara people, more than their fair share. Yeah. By the way, um, you refer to it as Canara sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I guess on the maps it's Canaraville. I, 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 what's the... Canara uh, was incorporated in the 1920s and okay. it became Canaraville. It oh, was actually okay. called Canara before that. Okay. And since the people I studied left there in 1920, during their the time they lived there, it was Canara. Yeah, yeah. It was it was always Tokerville with the Ville on the yes. end. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's it's good to have the locals' perspective on on that. Um, anything else you'd like to say about Kate? Um, she was an, a remarkably interesting woman. She was very patient with her mother, and um, she um, was able to tolerate a lot. But she did have a strong opinions, and she had a wonderfully supportive husband. Mm-hmm. Um, now we arrive at uh, her daughter, right? Sarah? Yes, Sarah. Sarah's a very interesting uh, person. Tell us a little bit about Sarah. Sarah was a very strong-minded woman. Uh, She was very talented, especially in handicrafts. She could uh, make almost anything. She was a tremendous seamstress. Uh, She was able to look at patterns in catalogs. Uh, look at clothes in catalogs, and she could make anything she saw or combine different things to make something that took a feature from here and a feature from there. So she was very, very gifted. Um, she was not a very talented housekeeper. Her house was cluttered and busy, and um, she was uh, sort of a she was the kind of person that was always around town visiting her friends, and she loved to talk. Uh, she, like her grandmother, had very strong opinions. And um, she was not happy in her marriage, as you referred mm-hmm. to earlier. Yeah, and that was, you know, very touching to, to her, I guess, all of her married life. Uh, not a happy marriage. What were, what were the problems? Well, the um, circumstances of their getting married was that they had gone to bed with each other. And she thought she was pregnant. And she wrote him a desperate note his name was victor she wrote him a desperate note about uh she'd proven she loved him and he needed to marry her which he did um so the marriage when in it began with that kind of weighted against them she was five years older than him each of them was a very strong personality um she um despite her 
slip up with him, if you want to call it that. Uh, she was uh, a, a devoted believer in the Mormon faith. He was um, a skeptic, and um, he he earned his living as a sheep herder, so he wasn't home a lot. He had a violent temper, and um, he said there were two things he hated was a nagging wife and a dirty house, and one of their daughters said that's about what he got. At the end of her life, um, one of her, I don't know, children or someone uh, said that uh, she, what she got in life she had to go and get herself, and there were two things that she wanted to leave to him to do, and that was uh, a house, right, a, a newer, better house, and the other was to, to join the LDS faith. Yes, yeah, she thought felt like part of their courtship, he had promised um, to get a house and to study the Mormon faith and then be converted and take her through the temple. And he never accomplished those. Her first house was actually a granary that was deeded to her by her parents. He did build a house after she died, uh, but um, obviously that had no impact on the mm. relationship. And he he was not a believer in the Mormon faith. And uh, for some people who are uh, Mormon, it seems logical that if you study it, you'll automatically accept it. But that wasn't where he, he was. And so they could never be reconciled on those points. Mm. When did she die? She died in 1938. 1938. And I noticed he he lived several decades. Yes, he beyond. died in 1961. Um, the circumstances of her death were interesting to me. Uh, she was retaining water, retaining fluid. Yes. And so that when she died, uh, the, 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 I guess the mortuary wouldn't, yeah. was reluctant to take her. Yeah. She had so much water in her that they were afraid if they pricked her skin, it would just flood out. Um, and she had a lot, very long and painful death. Yeah. Uh, even though she was swollen with fluid, she was practically starved because mm. she couldn't eat. And then the, the, I guess the, the mortician told him you you better bury her tomorrow, and they said uh, no, we'll just pack her in ice. They uh, did, which, which they did. They did, and uh, ice was a kind of a new thing then. Um, they, when she became really sick, her parents bought a who were taking care of her at that point, bought a refrigerator, and all the kids in the neighborhood came around because it made ice. That was really exciting. Mm. And so after she passed away, they made all the ice they could, and they hit up all the neighbors that had refrigerators and got enough ice to pack her body to keep it fresh. Yeah. She did also die in late September, so it was probably a little cooler. Yeah. It was especially poignant to me to learn that she essentially rejected her husband at death, right? She, she instructed her family, uh, don't perform the ceremonial rite in the temple that, that would join us uh, beyond death. Yes, that's a pretty incredible story. Um, of course, in the Mormon faith, uh, men and women need to be united in temple ceremonies in order to reach the highest levels of glory in the afterlife. And for women who were unmarried in the afterlife, their role was to be a servant forever. Um, in fact, her own grandmother had written a letter about that very precept. But when she was on her deathbed, she asked her family members, all women, to swear they would never have... Uh, the posthumous sealing done in the temple that would mean that she would be stuck forever with her husband. And I understand they didn't follow that wish. They did not. The um, ones who swore they wouldn't do it were not the instigators of it, but it was uh, done by 
it was led by a son of hers who was so young when she died that he didn't remember her. And frankly, her husband, Victor, was a much more mellow individual toward the end of his life. And um, this youngest son remembered him with a good deal more affection than the older children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but that was pretty, you know, fairly radical for uh, a step for her to take in, in that culture. Yes, I'd uh, say so. I, yeah. I doubt that happened very often. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about uh, Sarah? She was very talented. Uh, one of my favorite stories is that uh, she made, a, I believe it was a flower arrangement, and um, her family told her to enter it in the fair, and she wouldn't do it, so... Um, her father entered it in the fair in his name and won a prize. Hmm. Interesting. In his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you wanted to say something about uh, your, is it she, she's your great aunt, Reba? Yes, she's my great aunt. You, you spent a lot of time with her, uh, picking her brain and getting histories from her. Yeah, she was a really critical informant for me. She uh, didn't get married till she was 42. She lived at home all that time. Uh, she was in her 30s when her grandmother died in that home. So she lived for many years with her grandmother, who was one of the characters in the story, and with her parents. Her mother was an important character. And she out- outlived her sister, who is Sarah, the one who didn't want to be with her husband. So she was a, a very important informant, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful to talk to, and uh, gave me tremendous. I, I'm sure I interviewed her more than 40 times. Mm-hmm. Her marriage that was interesting. I guess it was her mother and a and a and a friend, a mother's friend, yes. who conspired to get these two forty year olds to together. Yes, it was it was pretty fascinating. Her parents were called to serve um, as in ordinance workers in the St. George Temple, and while they were there, they they met a woman uh, named Robinson. And um, she had previously been married to a Lefevre, and she had a son named Carl who was in the service. It was the time of World War II, and um, he was in the hospital for some minor thing, and she wa- he had never been married. And she wanted to know if the Roundies could um, find recommend anybody as a pen, a pen pal for him. And um, so they were getting worried about Reba because she was in her 40s and hadn't married yet, and um, so they, um, they kept nagging her until finally she wrote to this man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when he came home on leave, they, uh, went out together and their date wasn't very successful. He fell asleep in the theater and she was going to get up and leave him there. But the person running the movie house wouldn't let her leave him there. So, um, it was kind of interesting, but they, they got married and they had a wonderful and happy marriage. Mm. Now, there's, you know, I don't want to pick specifically in Mormon culture. A lot of cultures have this pressure. Mormon culture certainly does. Got to get married, got to get married kind of thing. Yes. These two mothers, you can see them conspiring here. Yeah, and that's, I'm sure that was true of the general culture in the yeah. 1940s as well. Yeah. Just a few minutes left here. Um, I wonder, this has been a labor of love over many years, this this project, a, a lot connected to your family. Of course, this is your family, but... Um, what do you take away um, in a broad sense? What's your What are your biggest takeaways here? Well, for me, my biggest takeaway is that, that stories of interest and, and they're educational and help us understand previous times don't have to be about the big players who um, 
in the presidential biographies. Um, they don't have to be governors and senators. Working people had fascinating lives. And if you're able to recapture their personalities and their lives and struggles, it's a w- wonderful story. Hmm. And what about, uh, so the title is The Women, A Family Story. What's what's your takeaway having done this project, framed it in this way? What's what What's your conclusion at the end? Well, I think that um, women contribute a great deal to our society, but historically they've not been recognized. I think one of the great things about one of Utah's best historians, Leonard Arrington, was that he recognized women's history was not being paid attention to and initiated very serious efforts to redress that. And I think the more we delve into some of these unexplored areas, not just women, but minorities, uh, people who have been left out of the mainstream, people whose lives have been marginal, I think we learn a great deal about ourselves. And I think we can learn a lot and enjoy the stories and the learning that comes with it. Finally, uh, someone's, uh, you know, wanted dive into their family history, uh, you know, maybe they're not a historian, um, what advice would, would you give them? Well, uh, anybody that wants to start with their family history, of course, um, will be told you start with the documents you have in hand. Um, you can start with your birth certificate. Uh, if you come from the Mormon culture uh, and your family has been part of that for a long time, there's gonna be, it's going to be really easy. Um, but th- but regardless, there are some great stories out there. The kinds of sources I used are are um, pretty ubiquitous, except the church sources. But you know these county newspapers were a feature all across the country. Um, court records, oral histories, diaries, and letters are not unique to any certain culture. I would suggest they they dive in, and the sooner the better. The oral history. The only challenge with that is that. People don't live forever, so if you don't get to them sooner, you may not get to them at all. And what would you say to the uh, kind of a, a lot of people are used to wanting to sanitize the history, um, you know, ignore the warts? Uh, you certainly have not done this in, in that history. These are very real people here, uh, presented in a very real way. What would you say to people who who uh, are, are diving in, maybe? nervous about the skeletons in the closet, so to speak? Well, first, if um, if you want to do hagiographic history, um, that, like I said, is a very legitimate form of history. It's um, It has limitations, um, but it, many people find that very rewarding. I think if you want to write the kind of history that people outside your uh, like-minded folks uh, or your immediate relatives. If you want to write the kind of history that that a broader uh, group of people would read, I'd suggest that you would find a much richer, more interesting and educational story by writing about people as they really were. How has your family reacted to your children, siblings, uh, relatives reacted to your history here? Um, It's been really very positive. I'm sure that any of them that were unhappy with it have been kind enough not to share that with me. But uh, I have relatives of all kinds of beliefs and persuasions, and I've gotten some terrific feedback. And I got a lot of cooperation during the writing of it uh, in terms of finding documents and photographs and those kinds of things. So I, I couldn't have asked for, for more support than I've received. Well, we've reached the end of our conversation. The book is out from University of Utah Press. It's called The Women, A Family Story. We've had with us the author, Carrie Bate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure.
And thanks for listening to Access Utah. And now a commentary from Gina Wickwer. We northern Utahns are rushing to Smith's or going online for eclipse glasses and praying that the pall of smoke from the Idaho fires won't ruin our partial eclipse watching. Some folks have decided to run up to Boise or Jackson Hole and Environs to get a view of the full totality. But if you didn't make your reservations a year ago for a motel, hotel, cabin, or campground space, you're out of luck. I've read that the northwest U.S. will be inundated by some 500,000 eclipse watchers, so even the back roads into Twin Falls will have tents set up along their shoulders. Our son sent us a link to the eclipse watcher who filmed last March's full eclipse while flying on Alaska Airlines. The plane was right in the path of the totality, and he had the best seat in the house next to a window. A meteorologist, he went simply wild filming his YouTube movie, expertly telling viewers between shrieks of exhilaration about the diamond ring, the corona, and the bailey beads that you can just barely make out from his film. It's a great YouTube clip, and we've watched it several times. Our son also sent us a photo of him and his friend as they eclipse watched from a beach in Baja years ago when they were in law school. And I myself experienced a total eclipse in June of 1973, just days after the summer solstice. Several of us from Fairbanks took a Cessna 180 to Bettles, Alaska. Above the Arctic Circle by about 30 miles, this little village lies along the Koyukuk River south of the Brooks Range. The eclipse was taking place during northern Alaska's white nights. It was awesome. As totality approached and it began darkening, birds alighted, stopped chirping, and then put their heads under their wings. Animal sounds and insect buzzings grew silent. The air became noticeably colder, and the gravel runway lights turned on. Actually, they were on all the time, but couldn't be really seen easily in the months-long Arctic daylight. The eclipse lasted about two minutes, if I recall correctly. As the totality ended, birds suddenly began chirping again, insects resumed buzzing, the temperature warmed, and the lights on the gravel runway faded. Totally, totally a wonderful total eclipse. I won't be able to duplicate that total eclipse this Monday, but even a partial eclipse, if not smoke-covered, will make me once again thrilled. This is Gina Wickwar. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.